Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshaldon, and today we're going to talk to Daniel J. Robinson about the history of smoking in Canada. Daniel Robinson is an associate professor in the Faculty of Information and Media Studies at the University of Western Ontario. He is the author of Cigarette Nation, Business, Health, and Canadian Smokers, 1930 to 1975. This book is published by McGill-Queens University Press, and it's part of the new McGill-Queens Intoxicating History series edited by well-known medical historians Virginia Berridge, Erica Dick, and Noelle Plack. Professor Robinson has previously written books on the history of communications and polling in Canada, as well as on the history of the print and broadcast media. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm always interested in the motives that uh, compel authors to devote years of their life to writing one book, and certainly this book falls into that category. It seems to me that your mother's life and death provided you with some very strong reasons to research and write this book. Can you tell us a little bit more about this very personal linkage? It is a personal book for me, in part because of my mom's long struggle with um, trying to quit smoking. Uh, So when I was a kid around age 10, uh, most of the adults in my life smoked. My mom did, my dad did, my aunts and uncles. Uh, I would get my mom's cigarettes at the store when I was 10 or 11. Uh, People would give cigarette cartons as Christmas presents. Uh, My uncles were pretty good at blowing smoke rings, and lots of kids love to see that. And so I, I came to wonder about this as I got older. Why was it that in the 70s and early 80s, when I was growing up, this was 20 or 30 years after the science had shown that smoking caused lung cancer, why was smoking such a commonplace feature of my working class family at that time? And that just sparked a, an interest to sort of dig deeper into this topic. Right. And what you have presented is a real narrative of the history of cigarette smoking. It covers the consumers, the industry that supplied the product, and the government that regulated it uh, from 1930 until 1975. But you also had a diamond-hard research question, maybe a conundrum behind it. Can you describe the question that you had and why you feel that it had not been adequately answered before you wrote this book? Yeah, in part, it's what I was just alluding to before. Uh, How was it that so many families like mine in the 70s and 80s had so many smokers in them long after the science of smoking had been shown? But what I found when I started doing the research is that from about 1950, so this is just before the, the smoking links to cancer are, are known, from about 1950 to 1980, per capita cigarette sales increase almost every year. So even when you control for population growth, there are more cigarettes being sold in Canada at this time on a per capita basis, even though the, the prevalence of smoking, like the percentage of people who are smokers, declines gradually over those years. So I wanted to know what was going on. Why were people buying more cigarettes when the science of smoking became more solidly known? Uh, and and why was, uh, what was what was contributing to, the, to that sort of uh, sales trend? 
Right. So you've organized the book in two parts. The first deals with the world of smoking and cigarette marketing, largely from the perspective of the consumer. And the second focuses on the perceptions and actions of the tobacco industry and the government in response to both the findings concerning the causality of smoking with cancer, uh, as well as regulating the industry from a taxation perspective. Why did you choose this particular uh, structural approach? Well, I, I wanted to talk about smoking before the serious health concerns were known starting in the 50s, right? I wanted to give a sense of what that smoking culture was like uh, in the 30s and 40s uh, before people increasingly were associating it with uh, lung cancer. And in part by doing that, you're recreating a kind of lost world of smoking. So at that time in the 40s, about 60% of adults smoked cigarettes. Today, it's around 15%. Uh, today, people, you know, most people from higher socioeconomic brackets don't smoke, and they often have very little kind of familiarity with, uh, with smoking and people who smoke. So that was a very different world back in the 40s. Um, smoking spanned classes. You were just as likely to be a cigarette smoker if you were from the upper classes as you were from the lower classes in the 1940s. It spanned regions. Um, increasingly, women start to smoke more so that by, by, the, by the late 60s, they're almost at the rate of men. So it's a prominent um, everyday feature of people's lives at this time. So it's important to understand what that culture was like and to look at the different aspects, you know, building that up. I think it's also important to understand the ingrained nature of that smoking culture once you get to the 1950s to, to appreciate how difficult it would have been for Canadians to quit smoking, not just because of the addictive factors of nicotine, but the way in which smoking had permeated people's social relations and their kind of cultural mores. This is an extremely well-researched book, so I'd like you to tell us something about the primary sources you relied on to reconstruct this history. And the reason that I ask this question is that uh, we, as members of the Champlain Society, are very interested in this kind of documentary history, and we're a society that's dedicated to the preservation and dissemination of original documents in Canadian history. So can you describe... Uh, the kinds of primary sources you relied upon? Well, some of them were the conventional ones like like newspaper and magazine articles. Um, I, I did a lot of work on the tobacco trade press and the advertising trade press. Uh, looked a lot at, at advice columns in, in newspapers to get a sense of what people were talking about in terms of smoking uh, etiquette. Uh, lots of work on lots of cigarette ads, of course, um, films. There's a great database of, of soldier letters from World War II, soldiers writing back home. And so you could search that digitally and come up with uh, lots of material on what, what those soldiers are saying about cigarettes. Uh, use government records extensively. And I used a lot of industry records, which I gained access to starting around 2014, 2015, because there was a, a, a big uh, class action trial in Montreal against the tobacco industry. And out of that trial, there were tens of thousands of industry records that became available. And so I was able to draw on those, um, including market research studies. There were tons and tons of those that were done by, 
like tobacco companies. And that gives you, enables you to kind of give a, provide a kind of social portrait or a social composite understanding of the Canadian smoking population. Well, as you mentioned in terms of that source, these documents just wouldn't have been available because as a the typical historian asking for access to that material in a private company archive, it wasn't likely that the cigarette companies would give you that kind of access. So getting them through this means was really uh, a tremendous advantage to you. And I, I saw how uh, effective it was in being able to reconstruct the story. I also uh, loved your chapter on the Second World War, in part because of the letters back home from the various soldiers in the European Front in particular, but also Pacific Front, talking about cigarettes. Um, it struck me, though, that when I read the chapter in the Second World War, that what really happened at that point was there was this spread, this rapid spread of the culture of smoking and the way in which cigarettes were used and perceived during the war really laid the foundation for what would become the dominant smoking culture in Canada in the decades following the war. As one Canadian soldier put it, and I quote uh, from what you've quoted from, we seem to smoke an awful lot more here than in civil life. Of course, he's talking about Europe as opposed to Canada. He says, he goes on to say, I don't know why that is so, but it is so. So, as our witness to yesterday, can you convey how the average Canadian soldier would have experienced cigarette smoking and felt uh, emotionally about cigarette smoking? Well, I, I can hear also speak about my, both my grandfathers were, um, overseas soldiers during World War II who smoked extensively during this time, and one of whom actually started smoking uh, while he was in Europe. Uh, I would estimate about 80% or more of Canadian soldiers stationed overseas were cigarette smokers. And um, they, many of them started smoking when they were overseas. And they started smoking because cigarettes were an important way in which people came together and a kind of developing of social cohesion and social solidarity. Part of what which like led to that was the manner in which those Canadian soldiers received their cigarettes. The vast majority of them did not come from rations or from purchases, say, at the canteen. The vast majority came as gifted cigarettes. These were uh, family members back in Canada or friends or organizations that sent cartons of cigarettes to Canadians overseas. So these were gifts. And because they were gifts, there was a kind of protocol of, of, of gift exchange, right? You, you, there's an element of gratitude with that. There's a kind of reciprocal obligation. Typically, um, you then send a thank you note or in the letters that you send back, you thank them and you talk about why the cigarettes were important. Those cigarettes in, in that gifted context arguably cement kind of family networks between the home and the, and the battlefront, um, shoring up those sort of transatlantic ties uh, as well. Um, but I think more importantly, when those cigarettes were in the hands of those soldiers, um, they shared them. Uh, lots of evidence to show that these were not seen as sort of the personal possessions only. They had a kind of collective 
property aspect to it. And so soldiers shared their cigarettes, which in turn would have boosted uh, a sense of social cohesion and esprit de corps amongst those troops. And so you're you're promoting, uh, fostering camaraderie um, and uh, kind of communal values. And I would say that that's really important for men and women who are in a fighting unit, that when you are able to sort of shore up social cohesion in those groups, you, you strengthen their effectiveness as a fighting unit. So in effect, the cigarettes helped to kind of construct that, that so-called band of brothers and, and arguably was socially beneficial for, for, for most of the soldiers overseas. I would say for prisoners of, uh, prisoners of war, for POWs, this was especially the case. They were allowed to receive those gifted cigarettes as well. And not only would they have provided some solace and comfort in terms of smoking and what was mostly a kind of a boring existence, um, but they could use those cigarettes as a form of currency. They could trade them for better food with the guards and, and for other material items as well. So by the early 1950s, uh, a majority of Canadians, six and 10 Canadians, as you point out, were smoking cigarettes regularly, and they came from all socioeconomic groups and from all regions in the country. And the number seemed to continue to grow after that. Can you tell us why and how did this smoking manifest itself in terms of everyday social and work activities? I would group this into sort of three uh, explanations, um, sociability, psychological well-being, and, and productivity. So on the sociability front, cigarettes were a, a common means or an expression of social interaction, right? You, you came together with people and you smoked, and the, the, the act of smoking was a way to combat social isolation, to connect with others. Uh, you know, it's a type of social lubricant, whether you're in a bar or a bingo hall or at a family gathering. In fact, there were school textbooks at this time in Ontario in the late 40s that actually said that smoking promoted social health in this sense, right? Allowing people to kind of, you know, get along with people and live in harmony with others, etc. And it was said to give rise to the socially satisfactory personality of a sort. So... Uh, psychological well-being uh, meant that people thought it was relaxing and helped them overcome uh, the stress of their lives. And, and productivity, because so many people could smoke while they were working, they came to associate smoking with being good on the job. And when uh, they couldn't do that with, with pipes or cigars. Now, at the same time, evidence was emerging about a link between smoking and lung cancer. And uh, I was very interested in one major medical study that was reported in the Toronto Daily Star in March of 1949. But there are, of course, many similar studies within a few years that were being reported, at least in a couple of the newspapers in the country. And um, as you point out, it was varied in terms of the publications that would publish such things. But in a little while, the link uh, became more than correlation, but there was a causal link drawn uh, in terms of the connection between smoking and cancer. Nonetheless, popular belief in public policy lagged these findings by something like, in my count, a couple of decades. What were the two or three main reasons for this lag? Over time, um, non-smokers came to accept the science of smoking causing cancer. 
smokers were far more reluctant to do so. And so what you have to ask is why was that the case? Um, smokers were not just accepting the health risks and saying, I'm just going to live with it because I'm, you know, I'm addicted or I, I just love smoking so much. They came to develop uh, a kind of monologue of internal arguments for how they could justify what they were doing. Psychologists today call this motivated reasoning, where people who are engaging in dangerous behavior tend to adopt ways of rationalizing it. They adopt justifications or selective arguments, or they seek out certain types of information that will allow them to think that their choice is a kind of logical one, right? And so that's what I call the intellectual work of being a continued smoker and, and not quitting, right? Because you have to continually come up with these arguments, right? The other, a couple other factors, one is that you were right, that you know, some newspapers, some news organizations were very good about documenting the health effects of, of smoking. The Toronto Star was a good example of that. Reader's Digest was good. But there were lots of other publications like, like Saturday Night and McLean's and many others that really did not talk about this issue. Uh, and if they did, they often ran articles that still promoted the scientific or uh, promoted the psychological benefits of smoking or they thought that the risks of smoking were being overhyped by the medical class. And the third point is that the tobacco industry launched a disinformation campaign in the early 1950s. It would run for about four decades, and it effectively denied over and over again that there was any causal link between smoking and lung cancer and heart disease and other illnesses. And they did that, um, I think, somewhat effectively in terms of allowing people to so think that there was some doubt involved, that the scientific community was still not, you know, there was no consensus yet among scientists, and that they could wait until the definitive word came out. And of course, the, sci the, the tobacco industry would never say that there was a definitive word because they were in constant denial about that. Well, I was quite taken with the parallel that you drew between tobacco smoking at that time and climate change in more uh, recent years. And uh, so tell us a little bit about that parallel, in particular, what policy lessons we can draw from it, uh, from, from what happened in terms of the tobacco industry and smoking. Uh, and can you focus a little bit on what you uh, refer to as common knowledge and the fact that we may not have that right, in particular, we might be suffering from the erroneous perception today that climate change is common knowledge, at least the scientific findings about it are common knowledge in terms of the broad public, in the same way that a non-smoker uh, or a scientist would have felt that uh, it was common knowledge that there was a linkage between cancer and smoking in the 1960s for sure. So in the, in the case of climate change, um... When this issue starts to uh, appear on the uh, on people's radar in the 1980s and 90s, um, you had an oil industry and a gas industry that basically were troubled by this. And what they effectively did was they adopted what some historians have called the, the tobacco strategy of, of, of doubt mongering and, and science repudiation, effectively sponsoring kind of dummy science or co-opting scientists to do research for them, which downplayed the, the effects of climate change. And, and in fact, these, in some cases, the, the same scientists for higher 
uh, allies of the U.S. tobacco industry in the 70s and 80s actually transition over to big oil and, and do the same thing for them in terms of fighting the, the, the facts and science of, of global warming. Um, I, I think uh, today there's far more consensus about climate change as being uh, a valid scientific uh, concept, right? I mean, the 80s and 90s, far less so. And I think if we'd actually had more uptake, more um, people willing to look at that issue seriously in the 80s and 90s to come to accept that climate change was real when it was first being documented, I think we'd be in a better position right now in that sense. In, in terms of, of, of common knowledge, uh, this this is a term that the um, the historians that work for the tobacco industry and litigation present. And they basically argue that anyone in the 1950s or 60s would have known that there was a, a solid risk of linked to smoking. There was a solid connection between smoking and lung cancer. And they would have known that because there were newspaper articles that said that. And in fact, when you look at the evidence, um, most smokers start before age 18, right? <laughs> so most 16-year-olds are not reading the Globe and Mail or, or, or are aware of the, the kind of scientific reports that are coming out in the media. There's a lot of evidence to show that it was not common knowledge. In I don't think it was common knowledge until well into the 80s that smoking was a definite cause of lung cancer. And amongst smokers, they held on to the belief that it wasn't the case at all for much longer than non-smokers. I was uh, quite amazed how effectively the cigarette makers steered around the cancer problem. And you document this very well. Uh, as you put it, the industry was dealt lemons in terms of the scientific evidence. So the industry made lemonade out of it. And in particular, I raised the name of Patrick O'Neill Dunn, the head of Rothman's Canada. He actually figured out a way to profit by the connection between cancer and cigarette smoking. Tell us how he did this. So Rothman's enters the Canadian market in the late 1950s, and, and Patrick O'Neill Dunn is heading up that effort. And what they come to realize is that their trademark brand, their, their flagship brand, was called um, Rothman's King Size. It was a filtered brand. It had lower levels of tar and nicotine. And they, they thought if they could present this brand as a safer alternative to those higher tar and nicotine brands that were in the market, um, they could capture market share quickly. And by actually implicitly playing up the cancer worries that Canadians might have had in the late 50s, in terms, also in terms of their advertising, they were able to get people to think, hey, uh, there might be a concern out there. And, and what's my response? Well, I'm going to adopt these so-called safer cigarettes, which have you know strong filters and have lower levels of tar and nicotine. And that's what they do. And Rothman's actually, within a couple of years, is able to capture about 20% of the market in Canada. Other companies like Imperial Tobacco follow suit. Uh, they initially introduce brands that have filters on them because people perceive them as safer. And then later, it's lower tar and nicotine brands um, because people perceive them as, as safer, but they're actually not. In fact, people generally just smoke more of those cigarettes. They compensate for the lower levels of tar and nicotine and, and really get no health benefit from that. Right. They try to get as much as they need into their system because of their addiction to nicotine. Um, 
Now let's move to what the government of Canada was doing. The federal government uh, really uh, didn't do a lot to challenge the industry in the 1960s and 1970s, and that was my understanding before I read your book. But I was quite interested in the role of two ministers. First was Judy LaMarche, uh, when she was minister of the Department of Health and Welfare uh, in the early to mid-1960s under Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson, and then uh, later John Monroe uh, in the early years of the Trudeau government. Now, both of these ministers, along with the support of their officials in the Department of National Health and Welfare, uh, tried to make changes. Interestingly enough, both had been heavy smokers, um, but despite their best efforts, they failed. They failed in terms of their efforts within their respective governments, uh, and they failed to some extent with respect to the Canadian public. Why? Well, Judy LaMarche takes up this file in around 1962-63. Uh, at that time, she's a very junior cabinet minister. She's the only woman in the Pearson cabinet. Uh, she experienced sexism in that respect as well. She's, she's not a, a power player by any means. The industry, the tobacco industry, really doesn't take her all that seriously. And the um, measures that she's, she's able to sort of implement in 1963, which really had, which were really more about sort of having a kind of research capacity in the part of the government to investigate the issue more, really didn't amount to that much. John Monroe, though, is a bit of a different story. Now, he becomes the health minister in the Trudeau cabinet after 1968. He is a two-pack-a-day smoker who can't quit, tried a number of times and can't quit. Uh, Judy LaMarche actually eventually does quit. Uh, John Monroe is, is passionately involved with this issue, and he wants to get people to, to quit smoking. And so he's able to pull together a bill in by the early 70s that will ban most forms of advertising, uh, most forms of cigarette advertising in Canada. He brings it to cabinet, and cabinet is somewhat lukewarm about this, um, but they agree to sort of let it have first reading in the House. Um, but then they don't agree to anything else beyond that. And so essentially you have some cabinet ministers like, like Charles Drury and Gerard Peltier and, and Alan McKechn and others who don't believe that the federal government should be doing this. I mean, this is, in their view, this is the government that just legalized homosexuality and abortion and basically said that the state has no place in the bedrooms of the nation. And they're saying, well, why would we be involving ourselves in you know, telling Canadians what to do in terms of uh, smoking or banning certain uh, practices related to the cigarette industry. We should just inform and educate and let Canadians decide. And the problem was they just couldn't conceptualize it as a, as a public safety issue, right, as a public health issue. They saw it as an issue around, um, you know, personal choice and, and informing people of what they thought was best. The other factor was the industry lobbied effectively against this bill. Uh, the newspapers and magazine companies do, the tobacco industry, and effectively they're just able to sort of pull enough uh, lobbying power together to sort of have the bill die. And so the bill dies uh, in the early 70s, and you don't actually get another bill like that uh, for almost 20 years until the late 1980s. Right. And so on that point, uh, there things begin to change in your book 
basically ends at the at the point that things really begin to change in terms of government uh, regulation attitude towards the industry. So I'd like you to to end on this. I understand that you're following up with another book on the history of smoking and vaping, and you're going to cover the more contemporary period, basically from the 1970s until about 2020. So can you describe what you're working on and when we can expect to see this in print? Well, I can't promise anything when in print because the last book took many more years than I thought it would. But I mean, hopefully in three or four years, let's say. Uh, one of the things I came across when I was writing the book was the fact that the tobacco industry reconceptualizes teens in a fundamental way starting in the 60s. Before that, they didn't really conceive of them as a market segment. In the 60s, they do. Uh, and they start doing lots of market research with teens. And what they basically find is that if you can get somebody smoking before the age of 18 with a particular brand, they will continue with that brand into their 20s and beyond. So the way to sort of max out your market share over time is actually to get teenagers starting with your brand. And so that realization is an important one on the part of the industry. And I wanted to look at how that plays out as you get past the 1970s, right? What To what extent are, is the industry targeting teens in the 90s and early 2000s, for example? Um, and to what extent does smoking um, play an important cultural role in, in teens, in the lives of teens? Um, What's interesting about this is that as you get up to the present, say around 2010, the rate of teen smoking drops off considerably, but then along comes vaping. And what you see with vaping is that when it was first introduced in the early 2000s, it was seen as a way for smokers to get off cigarettes, that they can transition to vapes and it was seen as a safer form of nicotine use and it would be good for them as a, an ultimate kind of quit smoking, quit nicotine strategy. But about seven or eight years ago, vaping companies realized there was another way to really juice the market, and that was to target teens. And in fact, it was to target teens who'd never smoked. And what you saw in the US uh, with the rise of Juul and, and other types of uh, vaping brands is a rapid increase in teens that were taking up vaping. And so today in Ontario, about 25% uh, of teens um, vape. Uh, just three years ago, it was around 10%. So a lot has changed, and, and, and so we need to understand what connections there are between vaping today and those, those earlier cycles of teen smoking. And we need to sort of better understand why it is that the industry goes after teens in this sort of way, a systematic way to, to juice their, their market share. Well, I know a number of people who work in public policy that uh, very much uh, like to see this uh, written about. So we look forward to the book, Daniel, and I want to thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. My guest today was Daniel J. Robinson. He is the author of Cigarette Nation, Business, Health, and Canadian Smokers, 1930 to 1975, published by McGill Queen's University Press, in 2021. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. 
If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. We want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on September 14th, 2021. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt. Thank you.